Thank you for listening to the Around the Net Post Tennis Podcast. Please tune in for new episodes every Wednesday and every Sunday. Happy Super Bowl Sunday and thank you for joining us again for another Sunday episode of Around the Net Post. I believe we're on about episode 11. It's gone really quick and um, it's been good, Jacob. I didn't, you know, it's, uh, are you surprised you made it this far? Just a little bit, you know, it's been a, uh, been a good run so far. I think uh, people are starting to be a little more interested in what we say on here. I- yeah, we're, we're up to about 500 uh, listeners to each episode. So yeah, it's uh, far exceeded my expectations. And thank you to all those who tune in uh, and, you know, interact on Instagram and, you know, send us personal messages. Friend of the podcast, Zach Blythe, has been very, very eager to come on. I think he's called me two or three times in the last two or three days asking when he can when he can pop on and you know chip more featured guest recently has also been uh, eager to get back on here so those are just a couple that i uh, i've heard from recently yeah that's that guy he sounds a little desperate i'm not sure if we're going to be able to have him on yeah you'll have to see going forward he might uh he yeah. might try out you know do some uh test recordings two calls in as many days sounds sounds a little much yep um no all joking aside um we uh we're sort of toying with the idea of chip coming on more regularly and sort of being a, a part-time host um so i think he was going to come on today but he actually has a match um so he had to postpone his his interview but a lot of great feedback from that from that episode i'll say so the the big news from from this week we haven't really spoken about it at all was you know your you know bell and abby both of our you know where we both went Played against Wingate, who were the the favourites, I would say, going into the match. This was on Thursday, and for about the, I'm going to say, first time in ten years, you guys managed to get the win. Uh, yeah, actually, I don't know if Belmont Abbey has ever been able to beat Wingate in tennis. Um, I didn't really try to dig back too far, but historically, Wingate's had a pretty good tennis program, and up until the last, you know, six or seven years, Belmont Abbey has not had a great tennis program. So. This was our first time in recent memory getting the win. Um, they were ranked, I believe, 10 in the country. So it was also the first top 10 win for Belmont Abbey tennis in either the last 30 years or in school history. So uh, really good, uh, really good spot to be in. And it was one of the, the best matches I've seen, both in terms of like the, the happenings of the match and like the level that everybody was playing at at least from Belmont Abbey's end. I think Wingate, you know, played a pretty solid match, but we ended up taking it to him a little too much, a little too early, I would say. But it's on the Belmont Abbey tennis Instagram. The celebrations uh, from the closing match uh, was, we know him as Andy G, but Andres Golandano um, from the Abbey against uh, Edis Nokic uh, of Wingate, who was, I believe he's the last surviving player from when I was at Wingate, who's still there. Mm-hmm. He... Those celebrations are absolutely, absolutely wild. What, what a point to end. And they just, you know, they had him, they had him, they were throwing him up in the air. Crazy yeah. stuff. It was, it was an insane match. It came down to that court and it ended up being a 7-6 in the third clincher for, for Andy G, who actually saved a match point in the second set as well. He was down, uh, I believe, 7-5, 6-5 deuce. And it ended up coming down to him just you know, eking out a long point, took the second set tiebreaker and had an early lead for a, he had a 3-1 deuce point to go up 4-1 in the third set, didn't get it, and then stayed on serve all the way up till 6-5, 6 all in the third set and just, you know, took home the tiebreaker at the end with just too many good points in the breaker. 
know, that's uh, what, what a match. And, yeah, I really enjoyed this video. We'll, we'll share that for all the listeners. Um, I'd love to get him on. Maybe, you know, could you, could you talk to him, see if we can get him on this this Wednesday, this coming episode? Yeah, I can reach out and see what he, what he says. Uh, I mean, we shouldn't be too busy by Wednesday, so maybe rank. available. Paul Rank, you are the coach, Jacob. <laughs> hey, I, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, so, does, so does that win that, you know, the, I, th- I believe they were the favorite uh, by some some margin on paper going into that match. Does that change your perspective for the season? Um, maybe a little bit. I would say that going into the match, I think we were pretty confident that we could compete with them. Um, we of had course. been kind of looking, looking ahead to see where we're at, even though on paper, like on UTR, each of their players was, I would say, almost a full point higher than our guys in a lot of cases. Um I think a lot of our guys were underrated just from, you know, not having results in UTR, not having, you know, the same uh, level of competition throughout a season where, you know, those guys are playing people with high UTRs all year. Our guys are, you know, sometimes playing a little bit lower level teams throughout the year. So it it was a, a little bit of balancing act, but going in, we were pretty confident. And I don't think it changes too much of the perspective. I was talking with some of the guys on the team and, I think kind of the the way I feel about it right now is we're, we're a team that, you know, can reach really high and pull off some big wins right now, but we're also not invincible where we're not going to, we're not going to drop any matches to, you know, competitive teams that might not have the ranking that Wingate had. So I think, I think it'll be important for us to, you know, kind of stay on our toes and keep trying to improve throughout the year, but also not take any match for granted just because we pulled off a big upset. No, that, that that's great insight. Uh, one thing I, I, you know, this week, you know, I, for those who don't know, I, I, I help coach a, you know, middle school girls soccer team, a local team. And we had our tryouts this, this week. Um, so we had to make some cuts, which was quite a difficult thing to do. And I wanted to get your opinion as a coach for a team that historically doesn't cut. I think it's about probably about 50-50, I'd say, with college tennis teams on whether they cut cut players or not. What what are your opinions on cuts at, you know, the collegiate level? Uh yeah, I kind of think it depends a little bit on what kind of program you're running. So at Bellman Abbey, if any uh listeners are interested, we uh we run a very big tennis team. We typically carry around 30 or so players, but we also tend to play, you know, three times as many matches as other college teams. I think we're scheduled to play around 50 to 55 matches this spring. So it, it allows everybody on that roster to, you know, compete and play matches. So for us, cutting players isn't really a, a big factor because we're not, we're not necessarily cutting them for performance reasons. And, you know, every once in a while you might have a, a player who doesn't quite fit the team mold or the team standards and, Typically, I think what happens is they just kind of figure out that this isn't for them and they tend to maybe look for something else at a different school or maybe they transfer to, you know, go to a bigger college or something like that. But for us, we've never really had too much of a, an emphasis on keeping or cutting players, I would say, based off of performance. But when you get up to the higher levels, like especially for a power five, it almost comes into question of how much money is each player getting for the performance they're putting in. And at that level, it's more of a business, I would say, to a certain extent where you have to be winning and you can't, you know, can't be losing your matches if you're getting X amount of dollars. So it it really brings into focus how much of that is uh, 
risk reward or dollar versus performance. Yeah. So interesting the the optics and the politics when dot when you know when bigger money sums are involved. You know, even in I would say tennis in terms of the collegiate landscape is you know a mid sport. You know, it's not not like basketball or you know football, but it you know it's bigger than than some. So it's sort of middle of the road. So interesting even even in that landscape how money plays such a big factor. And it was you know there were times at at the Abbey when I was definitely in favour of some players getting cut, but you know that was never on Coach Mike's radar. But interesting in my two years at Wingate one out. I was on the team one, you know, I didn't have any eligibility left. But in those two years, two guys got cut on a team of, you know, 10. So quite a lot of churn and percentage wise churn and burn com- compared to, you know, the Abbey where it was, you know, 35 guys, no one got cut. So just interesting. And, and thanks for your opinion on that. Of course, of course. Um, it is Super Bowl Sunday, so we, we can't proceed without without getting a prediction from you. Your Packers aren't there, so I know you're a little bit sad. Yeah, no, I, you know, if I had to make a prediction, I would say the Packers are going to win the Super Bowl, but, you know, that that can't really be the case at this point in time. So, ideally, I would not want either team to win the Super Bowl, but I'm going to go with, I think the 49ers are going to win, but I would rather see the Chiefs win than the 49ers. Oh, that's just a disgrace. That's disgraceful. <laughs> I just dislike the 49ers very greatly. No, I- I, uh, I'm a Tom Brady. I like Tom Brady, so I, I don't want to see Mahomes get any closer to his record. I don't know. CMC uh, had so many years at the Panthers, so I kind of I kind of want to see him win too. Mm-hmm. But really, I'd be glad to see the back of this season was was a dismal uh, fancy football year. So good riddance to this this season. <laughs> I, um, I had uh, some decent success, but you know neither of my teams made the championship. I think I went out in the semifinals in one league, and then. I think it was semifinals in the other, but it was a smaller league, so that was like first round of playoffs. We had a we had a listener tune in and, and ask for some tennis advice. As a coach, Jacob, I couldn't think of someone better than to you know what would be your one piece of advice to give an amateur tennis player uh, if you could sum it up in one minute. Well, there's a lot of different things I could give advice on for tennis, but um, just in general, if you're an amateur tennis player, and I guess if you're looking to improve your game, I think the the best way to improve in general is just to play as much tennis as possible. Like there's no, there's no one way like a coach is going to magically make your game better by, you know, taking a one hour lesson and you not going out and practicing. I think it, it comes down to just how many hours you can, you know, spend on the tennis court, how often you can hit with people, play some competitive tennis, maybe some, you know, USTA matches, UTR tournaments, stuff like that. But I think it really just boils down to, the number of balls you're able to hit while also kind of you know if you're trying to improve your game hitting balls while also having a focus on improving certain aspects of your game is i think the fastest way to improve yeah that's that's really valuable and would you say that's you know scalable from beginner to you know collegiate and above that one piece of advice is that something everyone can take on board i think so yeah that's that's something that i like to kind of you know try to get through our players' heads here at Belmont Abbey. You know, a lot of times we'll have guys that know how to play tennis, but they don't really know how to train and get better at specific things versus, you know, they just go out and hit balls for an hour or two hours. and like, okay, I practiced today. I'm, you know, hopefully I'm getting better doing that. But I think it really comes down to if you can go out and have a clear goal in mind of achieving something in practice. Yeah, I'm going to fathom a guess that, that you're speaking from something that 
maybe you didn't do as much as you wanted to do in college and now you've sort of learned that lesson yeah i would i would agree because there's there was times where i would have an idea of what i wanted to work on you know maybe over the course of a week but when i actually got out on court i you know kind of fell back into old patterns of i'm just gonna you know sit back here and make 20 balls and even though i had three opportunities to attack the short forehand i wanted to this week i just didn't take them and like in hindsight that's something i think would have helped my tennis game and i think it it's already something that's helping guys on the team where they they might have like a really good overall game but maybe a couple deficiencies and maybe it's coming forward to the net maybe it's you know changing their game style when somebody's playing a certain way against them just small things that require you to kind of analyze and put into practice versus just you know have it in muscle memory if you're not one of those you know elite tennis players no i completely agree with you i think i was definitely fell victim to that quite a lot of times you know you can go out and play for three hours but if you don't have a goal and you're just blindlessly hitting tennis balls you're not getting anywhere near the maximum out of that session as you possibly could i would say my my one piece of technical advice that i would give is just a prep for the shot you know take the racket back and get in position as quickly as possible you know as soon as you see that ball coming to the forehand side get your racket back on both the forehand and backhand side just mm-hmm. position the most violent and jerky part of the shot you know if you're there then you have as much you know more time to respond to the ball and accelerate through the ball as you hit it rather than you know waiting for the ball to bounce then just you know jerking the racket back and then you then you rushed so for those listening that, you know, want a bit of advice, get get that racket prepared early. And the second is is more of a mental advice is is not when you're practicing, don't try and win. Um, don't make that the primary goal. I, I did that for from, you know, when I was about four years old to, you know, I still do it even when I play just for fun now. Um, and it, it just clouds your vision on what you're trying to learn and get better. And I lot of uh, the good young players that I see now, you see those younger, better guys and they're just trying to practice and get better in, in practice. They're not worried about the result. And I think that de- definitely was a hindrance to me in my my career. Yeah, I, I would say I felt a similar way where I felt like I needed to do whatever I could do in practice to win versus, you know, improving what I needed to improve in order to, you know, actually win in an easier way than what it required for me to do without those skills. Yeah. No, let's let's take a short break here and, and remind you of our sponsor, 3030 Tennis, um, where each game starts at 30 all rather than love all to shorten points to make each point matter more, more effective, more pressure. That means you learn more and you know makes tennis more exciting for both consumers and for players. We've tried it here at Around the Net Post um, and you should, too. And when you do uh, get in contact with Mark Milne on LinkedIn, Instagram or Facebook, or visit the 3030 website, which will be in the podcast bio, um, and, and let him know what, what, what you think of it. Um, it's, a, it's a work in progress. He's trying to, to fine tune um, the mechanics of that format. So, you know, any any feedback is welcome. So that's our sponsor, 3030 Tennis. Uh, and thank you again for your continued partnership. You know, as we come back, the, the segment that I, I wanted to focus on, Jacob, was the UTS, the it, you know, it's a short, it's a different format than traditional tennis, uh, pioneered by Patrick Maratoglu. They had the first event at the beginning of the year. Jack Draper won it. Um, and I think we're on the second event now. Um, and a few storylines came out that we'll touch on. 
But I just wanted to get your sort of opinion, first of all, on, on what you think of, of UTS and, and this new new format. Yeah, I've been able to watch a decent amount. I remember the first time I saw it was, I think, in either 2020 or 2021. It was kind of a, a spinoff from everything being shut down from COVID. So I remember, you know, just getting to watch some tennis was really fun at that time. And I think it's interesting to kind of see how the format is different than, you know, uh, I would say typical tennis in the big ways you have different scoring system with, you know, points accumulated over a period of time that I think would be the biggest difference there. Um, and I think in my opinion, I, I enjoy watching it. It's kind of, you know, like an exhibition side thing, but in terms of how it would work, you know, at a, more realistic level I'm, I'm not as much of a fan of the time limit part just because tennis is you know has one of the most unique scoring systems in that there's never a moment where you can never come back in a match like there's no time limit like in a football or a soccer game where if you're down by x amount of points with y amount of minutes then you have like a zero percent chance of comeback like in tennis you could be down 6-0 love and realistically still have a chance of winning that match so I think it's interesting to see it in the UTS format, but I wouldn't I wouldn't want to apply it any broader than what it is now. I think they they marketed it so well, you know, Patrick um, Moratoglu did, you know, when they launched it, you know, in COVID when there wasn't really, you know, the ATP tour was done, there was no events. They launched it there, you know, obviously tennis fans, tennis lovers around the world were just, you know, craving tennis. Uh, it had been gone for so long and, you know, they get this, you know, shortened format. So they could have put anything out there, really, and it would have been exciting and people would have loved it because it was just some kind of tennis to engage with. So mm-hmm. I think they did very well to launch it at that time because we all know how important first impressions are. So everyone's first impression of this new format was, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. We love it. But I, I have some pretty strong opinions on it. I, I, I don't love it. Uh, I think, you know, if they... I don't see the value in investing in tennis outside of the ATP tour. You know, there's no, there's no points. There's no value to the overall tour. Um, And obviously we'll talk about this in a different episode, but the struggles that tennis is going to face moving forward. I don't think having these spinoff tours helps tennis overall in any way, shape or form. And, and quite frankly, the Saudis invested in, in live golf, created the spinoff tour, you know, and how much criticism did it come under? Um, you know, for doing that, I would argue that this is effectively the same, but it doesn't get the same amount of criticism because you know then it's not the Saudis. Um, but you know, you give you give players huge prize money for for playing. To me, it's it's just the same as what the Saudis did with Live. It just you know for political reasons, it it doesn't get the same same sort of stick. Yeah, no, I could definitely see how that would be the case. Um, I think it would be better for tennis you know to have more money invested at the the challenger level and build that up a little bit just because i mean those lower ranked players aren't making much money and a lot of the time these top guys are you know it's it's, it's essentially exhibition tennis for them just another stream of income where it doesn't really you know bring much to tennis outside of being entertaining for I guess viewers watching at home or maybe in what's person. What's the value? What like what's the value? You could invest in some, you know, even outside of the challenger tour, you know, you could make you just increase the quality of the the 250 events. You know, there's three going on this week, but you know, instead that you know, the UTS gets more attention because 
you know, it's you get the bigger players. Like those bigger players should be playing in the ATP event. Right. Like, and, and I don't understand why the ATP allows this to happen. Yeah, it's especially weird during the the actual, you know, tennis season with events going on, as you said. Like if it's in the the off season, which albeit is pretty short, but if it's in that off season period, there's not much issue, I think, with, you know, playing exhibition tennis, kind of going off and doing your own thing for a bit. But once the season starts, it's kind of odd to have, you know, top 10, top five players just kind of competing for essentially just, you know, money to show up and play some tennis. Yeah, no, and, and it's, it's different this type of exhibition to the exhibitions you see Djokovic play before Wimbledon, like Hur- the Hurlingham Club, uh, Boodles, for example, because it, that's, you know, it's a, a warm up event. But this is in the middle of the season when, you know, they're not warming up for anything. This is just a stretch in the calendar where there aren't big tournaments. You know, so they need that money. You know, the ATP should be speaking to Patrick Moratog and be like, no, you can't invest in this spin-off tour, but invest in our tour. It, it, there should be some sort of, I, I, I'm not sure how, it, tennis doesn't, you don't sign a contract to only play on that tour, I guess is the loophole that Patrick managed to find. But to me, it just devalues the ATP tour. And you end up with these 250 events that, I mean, you look at the event in Cordoba this week, it's not even comparable. You know, the, if they invest in those tournaments and get good players to go out and play, rather than at the UTS events, the ATP tours value and consumer experience goes up. Yeah, no, I would agree, especially with how the it takes away from the other 250s, like, you know, the Cordoba Open that you mentioned that I believe has two qualifiers in the final or something like that. Um, yeah, it does. And no disrespect to, to qualifiers, but, you know, I mean, if you know, if you're paying for tickets to that event and, you know, you're watching you know, world number 170 against world 156 in the final, you, you may be feeling shortchanged. Doesn't really, I don't think, bring the fans into the, you know, the tournament in a way that, you know, the next year comes around, they look at the draw, they're like, oh, there's nobody in the top 20 signed up for the tournament i'm not going to buy you know final tickets ahead of time because i'm not really interested in seeing a potential final between the world number 27 and the world number 70 you know it could be anybody but i would say even 500 sometimes like if the draw isn't great enough i feel like it will affect the overall attendance or the money that the tournament makes which you know in turn could affect it in future years so yeah i I do think a solution to ha- have these events, if there's true value, you know, I'm not a supporter, I'm a tennis traditionalist, but if if there is value and, we, and we're seeing the, the viewing numbers, the revenue from these events be high enough to justify having them, make them part of the ATP tour, like to get rid of the some of the 250s that, you know, are not doing well and put tournaments like this in that are open to a wider draw, not by invitation only and have them count towards the ATP rankings that, you know, there's, there's a con, I'm not saying there's, you know, it's my way or the highway, I'm open to a compromise, but I, I think just having them as a spin-off, just an exhibition event outside of the ATP is, is not the way to go. Yeah. I think that almost would be a little bit like what they did with the, uh, what was it? The United cup at the beginning of the year. Um, yeah. They, they counted towards you know, ranking points. You'd have a small amount of points per match you won, and the further your team made it, the more points you might get, Um, which I guess helps some of the smaller players in it, but you still only had two lines of singles, one men and one women's, and then a doubles match. So a lot of those spots were taken up by top 50 players, if not higher. So it wasn't really a great opportunity for, you know, smaller 
players to make, you know, either make money or make points off of the tournament. Yeah, and ultimately the only person that, you know, other than the, the players that get a, a nice paycheck, you know, at some random week in the year for, for playing these events, the only person that the UTS tour benefits is Patrick Norris Toddler. It's, 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 a, it's a money, you know, and I, I, as someone involved in the business world and someone who enjoys business, I absolutely respect, you know, the increase in, you know, commercial value of, of tennis assets. That, that's a good thing. But I, I think that people are a little naive to think that, you know, this is why it's good for tennis. Right. You know, I would I would agree. But one one story that did come out was uh, Gail Monfils was disqualified from this exhibition event for uh, beating up an official in the locker room. <laughs> not not quite. But <laughs> I saw that headline. It was Gail Monfils injures official and is booted from tournament. And I, I hadn't dug into it further yet, but I thought that was a little confusing or a little odd. So I'm, I'm interested to know what exactly happened. Mainstream media is uh, peddling the line that you know was a, a scuffle in the locker room that ended up with a official getting getting injured but the, a tweet from Patrick Moratogli was that you know it was a a friendly to like to imagine two children like play fighting he said it was like a, like that friendly banter that ended up the official got injured but because <laughs> there was an injury they had to disqualify him uh so I think there's there's definitely some some marketing going on there. I, I'd say it's probably somewhere in between what what happened, but I, I'm not I'm not too sure. I don't think anyone truly knows the the true state of events that happened. Yeah, no, I, I just looked it up, and they had a playful exchange in the locker room. Yeah, well, you just imagine like injury. two puppy dogs, yeah. two puppy dogs just rolling around on the floor. Yeah, that's a very uh, very interesting way of putting whatever happened. But I guess it it still counts as disqualification. I mean. Yeah. Maybe it maybe it falls under the same rule if they're following ATP guidelines as you know when when Djokovic hit that ball and hit the lines person in the neck, you know like injury on the tennis court should result in uh, disqualifications. So maybe maybe Monfils was hitting tennis balls around the locker room just warming up, you know, and he bumped one into an official. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure it will come to light at the end of the tournament, but they're probably not going to release it, you know, during. Um, we should we should do an episode on top five disqualifications of all time. I, some really good ones are already coming to mind, but th- that's a conversation for another day. I do want to introduce this. So this time next week on Sunday, we'll be interviewing Coy Simon, uh, who currently plays for UNC Charlotte. I was going to say in Charlotte, but that's, I guess, pretty obvious. Uh, <laughs> um, yep. He's uh, the riddle from from last episode. That if you've got two ground strokes, uh, but no backhand, what have you got? Uh, the answer is two forehands. So uh, well done to everyone who got that. Koi is a, a unique player who is extremely ambidextrous, has two forehands. So I have no idea what hand he actually is, you know, what's his strongest or weakest. But yeah, he's got two forehands and he actually serves equally well with his right and his left hand. So a pretty rare specimen in Koi. He'll, he'll be on next Sunday. Um so if you actually have any questions that you want us to ask Koi or would like to ask Koi, um, just DM them to the Instagram account at Around the Net Post and uh, make sure you follow and, and like the content there. Jake, how excited are you to have Koi on? I am very excited to have him on. Uh, I've known about him for a long time since he's also from South Carolina. Um, he is several years younger than me, but I have seen him at multiple tournaments, may have played him once or twice in tournaments as well. Um, 
And yeah, he's, he's had a pretty great career so far as a college tennis player. He was at uh, University of Tennessee, I believe, for, for a couple of years. Then he transferred over to, to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. But that's about a wrap on today's episode. Uh, thank you so much for, for tuning in. Um, enjoy the Super Bowl and uh, see us next Wednesday for another episode of, of Around the Net Post. I've been George Barford. And I'm Jacob Andress. And remember, always go around a net post. <laughs>